from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Over Informed on Tree Fruit IBM. You all know this by now, but I'm an entomologist. I study insects that eat plants. But real talk, at the end of the day, I understand that insect biology is one of the last things an average grower is considering before a laundry list of other things like plant fertility, farm equipment, labor, family disputes. I don't I don't know, teenagers. I would imagine problems with teenagers probably rank higher than insect problems with most growers. Also, in integrated pest management, we consider management in terms of how all pests, that's insects, mites, diseases, and weeds, might over-affect overall management of a crop. Diseases will often outrank insect pests in how crop management is considered. This is particularly true in tree fruit and even more so in East Coast tree fruit production, where the pathogens that cause diseases just love our humidity. So, though it chagrins me to admit it, we must take a moment to talk about one of the most devastating diseases affecting tree fruit in New Hampshire, and that is fire blight. First, the basics from Dr. Smith's fact sheet, which you can find on the UNH website. Fire blight affects over 75 species of plants, including common orchard crops like apples and pears, but also many related landscape plants like mountain ash, cotoneaster, hawthorn, and ornamental crab apples uh, and pears. The disease is caused by the bacterium Erwinia amylivora. When the bacteria gets into the tree, it kills plant tissue as it grows and reproduces, affecting blossoms, twigs, leaves, fruit, and branches. Blighted branches have the appearance of being scorched by fire, hence the name fire blight, and have a bend to them that gives them kind of a shepherd's crook appearance. The more and more the bacteria grows, the more plant tissue is destroyed by the disease and it can eventually kill the tree. Best management practices are generally to reduce inoculum sources in the orchard. In other words, to remove infected tissue full of these bacteria who are willing and able to infect new tissues elsewhere. During winter or early spring, orchardists will prune out and burn infected branches. Chemical control is often used at the end of this dormancy period to prevent outbreaks, um, somewhere between silver tip to green tip. There are also antibiotic products and biopesticides that can be applied to protect trees from fire blight infection during bloom. Through the growing season, orchardists will often prune out fire blight strikes as they occur, making those cuts at least 8 to 12 inches below the edge of an infected area, below one of those cankers and making sure to sanitize tools between cuts with rubbing alcohol or a 10% solution of household bleach and water. You may ask yourself, how do these tiny bacteria get inside trees? Traditionally, we think of two major avenues, one being blossom blight as a primary infection where insects and rain move bacteria from infected tissues into apple blossoms. And then there's shoot blight, where bacteria make their way into cracks in bark made by hail, wind whipping, or insect feeding. Furthermore, you may ask yourself, what kind of insects are we talking about here? Well, maybe you wouldn't ask yourself that, but I'm an entomologist and I have one track mind. And this is my show after all, so 
let's get over informed on the insects involved in fire blight. To do that, I had a chat with a couple entomologists that know this system very well. My name is Matt Boucher. I am a fourth year graduate student in Greg Loeb's lab at Cornell University. Well, honeybees were long thought to be the main culprit in spreading blossom blight infections. It looks like that might not be the case. I'm uncomfortable removing the onus from bees just yet. But what we're kind of thinking is maybe they got a bad rap for a pretty long time and that there needs to be a shift in the way that we think about how this disease is moved. Bees can only be important if there is already bacteria on the flower. Um, A new infection will build up in such high numbers underneath the surface of the plant that it'll actually um, like burst out from underneath the surface. And so what happens when um, it, it ruptures the surface is it starts oozing out this sugary matrix that is uh, sugar produced by the bacteria that serves as the inoculum for new infections. And in the spring, these holdover cankers from previous year's infections start oozing out this bacterial ooze. Um, and that is moved by wind, rain, and insects into blossoms and other injuries in young green tissue. Um, and then the infection cycle starts over again. And so people used to believe that that honeybees would pick up the bacteria in blossoms and move it from blossom to blossom, and this just broadly spread this bacteria across an orchard. But the problem is bees don't go to the ooze in the overwintering cankers. So that movement from honeybees is predicated on the fact that it's already made its way onto a blossom from some other introduction. When I first started this project, we were pretty perplexed at like why this hadn't been looked at in like over 80 years. And when you dig back into these really cool research papers from like the, you know, like the 1910s and 20s and 30s, they were testing all sorts of insects. And basically, once they designed antibiotics in the 30s to spray on trees, they just stopped doing it because they didn't need to, I guess. So we've decided to revisit this as like antibiotic resistance has sprung up here and there across the country. And and what we're finding is that flies are a really important player in 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 the movement of this disease. And and they will go and they'll land on this ooze and they'll they'll just feed on it and they'll sit in it and, and it gets stuck to their bodies and uh, they they get covered in it and then they can move it to new, you know, new healthy tissue. In the spring, a lot of these flies are overwintering as pupae in the soil and they emerge and they're looking for nutrients. They'll drink nectar from flowers. They'll go after the pollen. Even we've seen them out in the field kind of like picking at the pollen. Um, And they'll also feed on this ooze if available. And because the bacterial ooze is like a high sugar content substance, we believe that it represents like a very good like nutrient source. So Matt is hard at work understanding the steps of transmission, like how much bacteria a fly might need to pick up in order to transmit the disease to a new plant, um, how long those bacteria are capable of causing disease after they've been sitting on the outside of a fly or on the surface of a tree until those bacteria get into cracks in the tree. But I hope you are picking up on what he's saying here. The bacteria are creating a source of nutrition for the fly. 
and the flies are attracted to the bacterial ooze. This is a really remarkable approach to understanding the players in this disease cycle. The take-home message for orchardists doesn't change. You guys know how important it is to prune fire blight out of your trees. But this may emphasize how important it is to get rid of that infected material, perhaps burn the infected wood because there may be flies coming to it, pig-penning around in those bacteria and spreading them through your orchard. So we're specifically talking about blossom blight here, or is this related to shoot blight as well? Yeah, so that's one of our big questions. We broadly believe that flies and wind and rain are responsible for the movement of the bacteria from those original overwintering cankers to blossoms. Shoot blight is really, really unknown. Like people really don't know what's going on there. And this is actually kind of the crux of my PhD project is what, how does shoot blight happen? How does this disease continue to move after the blossom, after uh, petal fall? What we're interested in is this hypothesis where these flies who don't really cause damage to the plant basically pick up the bacteria in such high numbers from the ooze and then they just like either regurgitate it or defecate it or just slough it off of their body when they're grooming. They leave it behind on a surface that it could be injured from any sort of any sort of mechanical damage like and that creates an opening for this bacteria to colonize. So we believe that flies like need help during shoot blight especially to transmit this disease, but it might be a more direct route in the spring during um, blossom blight. So the first thing we did was we went out to the field and we, we did a field, a field survey. For a couple years, we would go out, we would collect um, insects on sticky cards um, weekly uh, throughout the growing season, and then we would test them, we would pull off a bunch of individuals from these cards and test them. And then we would get like a relative measurement of which flies were the most abundant and which insects in general were testing positive at high rates. That's where we identified seed corn maggot as a pretty interesting player. But in our early field surveys, they were the predominant fly in our orchard and they tested positive at a pretty high rate relative to other insects that we were testing. And so we're interested in this fly because it's attracted to like fermenting and decaying odors. And um, when a fruit starts to decay from fire blight and it starts to ooze, it has a particularly um, fermenty kind of smell. We, we did a little mini project uh, that we're still working on right now. And we, we gave these flies a choice between a diseased immature fruit and a healthy immature fruit. And we showed that 80% of the time they're choosing that diseased fruit. Um, so we have a little bit more to do to kind of like tease out what's going on in that. But like what that says to us is that these flies, they can, they, they do pretty well. Like they, they can find this stuff pretty easily. But how are shoot blight infections getting into trees? And what can we do to prevent those infections in orchards? Apologies for the audio here, but I really wanted to ask Kathleen Leahy about this too. Um, and I got her on the phone where she spends most of her time out on the road. Said you are using Mary Blight to track shoot blight. So like that's the, the infection. Well, 
Yeah, we 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 were using it to blossom blight, and it's an excellent for blossom blight, you know, and and very helpful. And it will predict when you see symptoms, which is one of the things I like about it. So people can go out like the day that Mary Blight says, you know, go find symptoms, and they're, if they're there, they'll they'll find them. Um, although people used to tease Paul that well, you didn't go out and look until that came, right? <laughs> you know? But but no, it, it, you know, I it, it, it worked very well. But then. He was kind of, you know, trying to extend it to predicting shoot blight infections and kind of pinning it on white apple leafhopper. And I'm not sure if they're, you know, maybe aphids too. And, and I was just kind of, no, because we had kind of gotten to the point where we were tolerating the white apple leafhopper and the aphids and, you know, just kind of wanted it not to be true. It just seemed unlikely that white apple leafhoppers would be, you know, a vector or, or a factor in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, Doug Pfeiffer, I think, and a couple of other people came out with some work, you know, that kind of hinted that the tail leafhopper might might have some role, you know, the the, the, the cause behind it. So it, that ended up being my my master's project, and basically we looked at potato leafhoppers and apogee because we, you know they were just starting to find out that apogee itself suppressed fire blight and, oh, and, and ap- apogee is that um plant growth regulator plant growth regulator so it kind of boosts the immune system of the plant yeah you know the original thinking that pete yoder was one of the people that first was you know kind of looking looking at it because they had been you know thinking that well, well fire blight affects rapidly growing shoots and so you know maybe a plant growth regulator that slows down the rapidly growing shoots might stop fire blight and when they started doing experiments with it it was it was you know remarkable how much it did it it turned out to not be for that reason at all oh what happened (laughs) it's you know it was just a few years ago that, that they finally figured out that what happens is in the in the course of, of the, you know, what the action that it, it creates, it actually makes the cell walls of the of the shoot a little thicker, mm-hmm. and it just the cell walls are too thick for most of the fire blight bacteria to be able to penetrate. That's really interesting. So it, That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it was just like really wild. <laughs> um, but it, well, but, but it works, you know, but it, not for the reason you thought it did. Right, and it and it worked extremely well because it was like. It, it continues to be like the second most effective after, you know, an antibiotic. Streptomycin is the most, and, you know, Apogee is the next. And then I think most of the other antibiotics might even be, even be lower than, than Apogee. So, and then, you know, I wondered whether Apogee would also suppress potato leafhopper because they're also going for rapidly growing shoots. Uh, I think the first summer's work was just with Apogee and and leafhoppers, and it turned out that there was, you know, significantly less damage where Apogee had been used. Uh, and it was pretty, if I remember, it was pretty comparable to insecticide. And the, the thinking is that, you know, it's a, they've always called it facilitating, not vectoring, because as far as we know, they're not carrying it around. They're, they're kind of punching a hole to the vascular system, and then the bacteria are basically just following that, you know, that path. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I will summarize. The bacteria infect the apple trees and trick them into producing this sweet ooze, which flies love, 
The flies and wind and rain move the bacteria around the orchard. The bacteria get into new plants through flowers, and that's with the help of rain, or the bacteria get into shoots with the help of leaf hoppers. The take home here is to be vigilant in removing sources of inoculum and to do all that you can to boost your tree's ability to defend themselves from attack. That may include a growth regulator product like Apogee. Stay tuned for more research on the mechanisms of this disease system, which has been keeping researchers busy for hundreds of years. Well, I think this might be the most over informy episode I've done so far. I, I know I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Thanks to Matt and Kathleen and thanks to Brentwood's favorite son, Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music. Overinformed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu. Is it like people just don't like flies? Like even entomologists don't like studying flies. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you think that there's something really difficult about the biology of these insects. Is it because we just don't really like studying them or is it because there is something kind of intractable about that group? Yeah, I have a lot of opinions about this.